Romans 15, beginning in verse 5, the scripture says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. Think for just a minute. I had a little fun this week imagining what a home fellowship would look like in the church of Rome, in this church that we're reading about here. Think for just a minute what it would be like. The, the, these early churches generally had Jews in them. It was Jews who were entrusted with the Word of God, who, who knew the Word of God by and large in, in many ways. And, and there were Jews who believed the gospel. That's primarily who the book of Romans is written to, Jewish Christians in Rome. But then there's also Roman citizens from all over essentially the Mediterranean world. And these two groups are very, very, very different. The Jews, who for hundreds of years have practiced certain traditions, and then the Romans bringing with them all of their own traditions. I mean, if you could just imagine. There are Romans who are vegetarians. That makes no sense to the Jew who eats only certain kinds of meat. And there is all these other Jewish traditions. And you can imagine these groups trying to come together and get along in a church. And then, add to that, guess who's coming to dinner? The barbarians. The barbarians were part of the early church in areas like Rome and Colossae and Ephesus. These are, essentially in Rome, it would have been the Visigoths. And, and they're probably bringing to the fellowship a huge plateful of bacon, which utterly scandalizes the Jews. And that, uh, essentially, the, the barbarians make no sense to the civilized Roman. But yet all these groups come together in the church? That's going to be an interesting family time. Right, just like all families have maybe crazy uncles. This is going to be challenging. There's racial divisions, Jews. And again, understand, Jews, it's been entrenched in their culture to think of non-Jews as dogs. That's what they call them, a dog. That's how they view a non-Jew. And this is hundreds of years they've thought that way. And then there's historic divisions that... The, the Jews are the descendants of Abraham. Historically, they've been the people of God. And now you've got these Romans and barbarians coming in. There's all these cultural differences, and not to mention political differences. All in the context of the church. I mean, my goodness, what songs do you think they want to sing? How, the Visigoths are going to want to sing very different types of music than the Jews who are used to singing psalms. It's going to make for an interesting coming together in the church. And again, it just it reflects the reality of our world. You understand division is at the heart of our world. Can't you see it everywhere? It's, it's a result of sin, and it's just simply part of the broken, fallen world in which we live. And it begins with Adam and Eve. One of the curses laid down on Adam and Eve's sin is that there's going to be division now in the family. This basic building block of human humanity, the family, husband and wife, 
One of the curses is about division now that's going to be among husband and wife. And then there's Cain and Abel. And what happens there? Division. And then there's coming to the patriarch Abraham, Abraham and Lot. And then there's this long history of division among the Jews and then certainly among the rest of the world. And it just continues. And it continues into the church. But one of the things God is doing through Jesus Christ and the gospel is he is working to undo the effects and power of sin. And that's what we see in the gospel. That's ultimately going to be culminated in the return of Jesus Christ and the new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. God is working to undo the ravages of sin that we see regularly manifested in just a variety of ways. And one of those ways is division in the church to which Paul addresses in Romans 14 and 15. Because under the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, there is to be unity among the people of God, even though there are real differences among the people of God. Look back to Romans chapter 14 and verse 1. Look at Romans 14, 1, because essentially chapters 14 and 15 go together. I'm pulling out a paragraph that focuses on unity, which is actually a prayer. But look at chapter 14, 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. It's a call to welcome a person and not to quarrel over opinions. Then look at chapter 14, verse 19. Chapter 14 and verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That sounds like a good church environment. Let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. We want to see one another built up. And then we come to our passage, which is really a prayer. Again, similar to the end of Ephesians 1, Paul the Apostle embeds these prayers, and it's a prayer for unity in the church. Notice it comes across as a prayer in verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. It's a prayer. He's asking on behalf of the church that God would grant us unity, and that's why, number one, from this passage, we should see that we should pray for unity. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That we pray for unity. I think it's interesting when there's this problem in the Roman church between the barbarians and the Romans and the Jews, which is really the great controversy in the the time of the New Testament. The great controversy that you read about in the New Testament is Jew and Gentile and the differences that are supposed to be brought together in the gospel, and then how do you really work that out in the church where you're really bringing together people that are radically different, but under the banner of Jesus Christ? That's the great controversy of the New Testament era. And that's what he's addressing here. And I I just find it helpful and quite instructive that in dealing with and addressing division in the church, Paul prays. He prays for the church. He prays for unity. And notice how his prayer begins. He roots his prayer in God. So many prayers begin with just an affirmation, a confession of who God is and what God is like. Notice it. He's the God of endurance. He's the God of endurance. That probably means he's the God that gives you endurance. Here's how you remain steadfast in the Christian life. Here's how you remain steadfast and persevere in the faith and in the church. The God of endurance. 
You ask God for help. And God gives endurance. And we need that in life desperately. Like we saw the prayer in Psalm 119. Give me steadfastness that I might obey your word. And we recognize steadfastness comes from God. He's the God of endurance. He's also, notice, the God of all comfort. That comfort comes from God. God comforts his people. God provides us encouragement and help through the difficulties of life. And that's what Paul is praying here for the church. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ. Now there's the, the next part of the prayer. We pray for unity. We pray for unity in mind. Look at it. I'm losing my place, I'm sorry. Grant you to live in such harmony. The word harmony there means to think with one mind. That's what this word means. It literally means to think the same way. So essentially at the heart here is how we think about one another. Think about one another. Because you know what we think about one another is going to affect how we treat one another. And the New Testament is full of admonitions and teachings about how we as Christians treat one another. And that's going to begin oftentimes with how we think about one another. And we're supposed to think in the same way. Look at what Philippians 2 says, where this same word is used twice. Philippians 2, also written to a church suffering from disunity. Philippians 2, 2 to 5. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see there the idea of being one mind is the same word here, translated harmony, to think the same way. Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, that's the same word, it's harmony. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain the mind that he's calling for. There is a, a, a humble mind, as Jesus was humble and took on the form of a servant. We also, as followers of Christ, are to be humble and, and think about each other in a certain way. Look what he goes on to say here in Romans 15, verse 5. To live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That's what this is supposed to look like. That the way we think about one another is supposed to be in accord with Jesus Christ. And I think the idea there is according to the example of Jesus Christ. As we're going to see in just in the very next verses, the example of Jesus Christ is called the mind. That the way we think about one another is supposed to accord with the way Jesus thinks. For instance, when Simon Peter comes to Jesus and Simon says... Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. Isn't it just amazing that sinners who, in their mind, actually think they're smarter than Jesus, who come to him in repentance and humility, he accepts. All the Father has given me will come to me, and any who come to me I will in no way cast out. What good news is that? Jesus is not about casting people out. 
or James and John. Okay, so here's the other two brothers. This makes up the, the three that are closest to Jesus in his earthly ministry. Peter, then James and John. There's a time in James and John's life where essentially something doesn't go according to the way they think it should. And, and their, their, their response is, Jesus, should we pray that God will call fire down on them? Should, let's just pray that God will kill them by fire. And Jesus rebukes them and goes on. But they continue following him. Jesus points out they're wrong, but he doesn't utterly castigate them for really what is their stupidity and ignorance. Or you think of Zacchaeus. How does, how do you, how does Jesus treat Zacchaeus? He's in this crowd of people, and here you have a chief tax collector who is rich, who essentially for almost every social reason people have to hate. He's the tax man, he's a chief tax man, and he's rich. And he climbs up a tree to see Jesus, and in the midst of the crowd of people, Jesus goes to him. Today, salvation has come to your house. Because you, even you, you depraved sinner, salvation's come to you. You're a child of Abraham. This is how Jesus treats people. Or when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, you understand, in Jesus' ministry, he's got some important things to do. He's on his way up to Jerusalem. And he takes the time to stop and help the downcast. Again, all of us are busy in life. You think of the Son of God and his busy state of affairs. On his way to Jerusalem to accomplish the mission given to him by the Father. And he hears people cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And what does he do? He stops and he heals them. Incidentally, when you read that account, it's kind of, it's sadly ironic. The blind men recognize Jesus as the son of David and the Pharisees do not. He takes time for them. He helps them. That's the way we're supposed to relate to one another. The way Jesus relates to people. Or you think about the rich young man who is deceived and wrong and is a religious hypocrite. How does Jesus treat him? Well, he's clear with him, but he's also kind and compassionate to it. It's what it looks like to, uh, to live in one mind to one another, live in harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ. We pray for unity of mind. And continuing on, verse 6, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Together is another mind word. It means that in one accord, essentially, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we see here the great purpose of praising God together. That together we want to praise God and glorify and honor Him in one accord. Was well, it possible for the church to be in accord and have harmony? Yes, it is. Acts 15. Acts 15, this great controversy in the New Testament kind of comes to a head of what do we do with these Gentiles that are being saved. My goodness, God's saving these Gentiles. They're believing in Jesus. They're obviously receiving the Holy Spirit. This is quite different. What do we do with them? Right? We've been keeping the Mosaic Law for hundreds and hundreds of years, and now the Dogs are getting saved and are counted part of the people of God. Acts 15, 
that controversy is dealt with. Look what it says in Acts 15, 25. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And essentially the idea is there we accept them as part of the people of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ. But notice the words, in one accord. The whole church came together to discuss this controversial matter. In Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism. And they come to one accord. They come to unity that these people should be accepted. So we pray for unity. We pray for unity in mind. And we praise God together. Or we pray for unity in purpose. Here's the great purpose that we pray for and that we're desiring. Notice it. That together you may with one voice do what? Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for unity in this purpose to glorify God. And this is why as Christians you must have these clear uniters that you see in Scripture. And to worship God for His glory has got to be something that unites us as the people of God. Despite the regular and reoccurring differences that exist among us. But there is, a, there is an unchanging reality, the glory of God. There's an unchanging reality that is bigger than our opinions. And that is that He is worthy. Regardless of my opinions, my traditions, my ideas, God is worthy. And God's clear purpose for His church is to praise Him together. Together to glorify him. And again, keep in mind who he's writing to here. Jews, Romans, barbarians. Together. There's something that can unite all these people. Praising the glory of God. <clears throat> Whenever the Reformation was just beginning, one of the great concerns was to get the word of God into the language of the people. Because essentially the, the Reformation began as, as people started reading the Word of God and recognizing what we've been believing and what the church has been teaching is not what the Bible says. And, and essentially, one of the, essentially one of the main tenets of, of Roman Catholicism, which still exists today, is guess what? There is one authoritative in, interpreter of Scripture in Roman Catholicism. And that is the church, led by the Pope. And essentially, during, at the beginning of the Reformation, one of the arguments that was made against the Reformers was, if you put the Bible in the hands of the people, and people are reading the Bible for themselves, then you're just going to totally splinter the church. Well, there's a shade of truth to that. I mean, essentially, shortly after the beginning of the Reformation, and the Bible was disseminated, and people are now reading the Bible on their own and they're seeing the gospel and they're believing the gospel and churches are beginning and people are trying to live out the word of God. Uh, very shortly, you have Lutherans emerge and you have the Reformed emerge, two different groups. And, 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 and the splintering begins. Their disagreement, incidentally, was over the Lord's Supper. So there's a shade of truth of, as to what the Pope and the Roman church said. You're going to splinter the church. But that misses, that misses a lot of the point. And one of the big points it misses is, yeah, there's some differences, but my goodness, what agreement these groups have 
about what the Bible fundamentally teaches. Like what we recognize or what they recognize and what they call the five solas. The, the, these five pillars of truth we see in the Bible, relentlessly taught through Scripture, that, that what we believe is based on Scripture alone. And then salvation is, is by grace alone. It's through faith alone. It's in Christ alone. And guess what? You know what the last sola is? It's to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. That, there, so there is, there is amazing unity there. Incredible unity about what matters, especially with regard to salvation. I, I got to thinking about this this week because I, I saw an atheist. I, there's a guy who's a, a friend of mine on Facebook who's an atheist. And he's, I mean, he's just a, he's a belligerent atheist. He doesn't like Christians. It's, it's so strange how often he attacks Christians. It's almost like he's under conviction or something. I don't know. Hopefully. But he attacks Christians weekly. And his post this week said, essentially the argument of Rome in the Reformation, every Christian disagrees with every other Christian. That's what he posted on his Facebook. Every Christian disagrees with every other Christian. Well, number one, I think it's a bit dishonest. We're not, that, we're not quite that adversarial with one another. But again, there is a shade of truth in that. And that's why people listen to that kind of stuff. There's a shade of truth. But again, it misses the point. <laughs> yeah, there are some differences and disagreements, sadly, and we lament that. But my goodness, what agreement. Starting with that which is of first importance, the gospel. That Christians, despite our numerous differences, believe the gospel. That's what fundamentally makes a person a Christian. And Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, that is what he delivered as of first importance, the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and he was raised again the third day in accordance with the scripture. This you have believed. And we, as Christians, we believe that, confess that, love that, and agree with that. There is incredible agreement among differing Christians on that. And furthermore, many other issues like the authority of Scripture. I have a friend of mine that I grew up with who became a, a charismatic. And I would, I would never encourage a friend or you to visit his church. But I don't have any doubts that he's a Christian. He believes the same gospel. He believes in the authority of Scripture. As does every Christian. And we all believe in the same Jesus. Atheist, we believe in Jesus who is God of very God, who is the Savior. The, the unity and the clarity in our belief as Christians, there is great solidarity despite lines of division. It's incredible solidarity. And there's a host of other issues as well. You, well, just think about Southern Baptists for a minute. Southern Baptists are a pretty narrow group. But man, among Southern Baptists, there is a lot of diversity. There's a lot of diversity among pastors. There's a lot of diversity among churches. Wow, it is a, I just tell people it's a really big tent. Or again, like, like Danny Aiken says, you know, this is a, a family of churches. A lot of them are really different. And like any family, there are crazy uncles in the family.
We all agree in taking the gospel to the nations. And we all agree of doing what we do to the glory of God. So yeah, there are differences that you could nitpick all day long. But there's incredible solidarity as well. So we praise God together. Incidentally, again, we lament those divisions and recognize them as a characteristic of a divided world and imperfect people. And you know what the, the, you know what the differences do? Like with my charismatic, if my charismatic friend is right, I want to believe what he believes. Differences should force us and cause us to search the scriptures. That's what differences do for the Christian. And the reason there are differences, incidentally, is because we're striving to, striving to obey the word of God. And I'm not going to recognize someone as not a Christian because they worship differently than I think is biblical. But if the Bible says something, I've got to strive to do what God says to the best of my ability. And friends, we look forward also to another day when there's going to be no divisions among us. That's coming. That's coming. And the divisions among us are a function of the depraved, sinful world in which we live. But look at what the book of Revelation says in Revelation 7, 9 to 10. This is a good verse to give the atheist who uses that argument. Man, you all are really divided about everything. You can't get along. Well, you know, one day we're going to when Jesus returns and judges the world and reclaims his people. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He turns real practical in the last verse here in chapter 15. Look at verse 7. After praying for unity, unity in mind, and praising God together, being the purpose, Romans 15, 7, therefore, here's the admonition, welcome one another. Barbarians who like to eat pork, welcome them, Jews, who totally abstain from pork. You see those, the issues in Romans 14 and 15, keep in mind how they're described in chapter 14, 1, opinions opinions. Welcome one another despite your differences in opinion. It's not on the, look, look what he, he goes on to describe how you welcome one another. This is powerful. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Oh, there's a good model for welcoming one another in the church and fellowship. How has Christ welcomed you? This is assuming people are Christians. Well, how did Christ welcome the Christian? Similar to the way the father welcomed the prodigal son who repented with joy and thanksgiving. That, that we welcome each other not on the basis of our worthiness. It's not how, that's not how Jesus welcomed us. Jesus didn't look down and say, my goodness, that one's worthy, and because of his worthiness, I'll accept him. Quite the opposite. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Now, that's how the world works. You, you welcome people in the world based on what they can do for you, right? Not so in the church. We don't set that up in the church. This is why James 2 says, my brothers, show no partiality. We don't think about each other in those worldly terms. 
of this person can do this. This person is this. My goodness, if only we could get this society person or this wealthy person or this gifted person. My goodness, what a difference they'd make. There's not those kind of distinctions in the church. But, but sadly, that's what so many people have done. They've set up divisions in the church based on opinion or preference or personal desire or experience or tradition. That's splintered a lot of churches, sadly. Incidentally, let me just take a break. Let me take a time out and encourage you for a minute. In the church, learn to be able to distinguish between opinion and biblical mandate. The two are very different. In the church, learn to distinguish between tradition, meaning a long-held, established practice, distinguish between that and what the Bible teaches, requires, commands, and examples. Be able to distinguish those two. That's what's going on in Romans 14 and 15. There are areas that would be in the category of opinion, like diet and dress and observance of days. And then there are, there are areas of biblical mandate, glorify God, love one another, welcome one another, be of the same mind. Learn and train yourself to be able to distinguish between the two, opinion and biblical mandate. And look at the final purpose. Again, you've seen it before. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here's the ultimate reason for our coming together and our salvation in all of life is to glorify God. It's a good thing to remember when you come to worship. Well, in Paul's day, he had a friend named Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave. That's another point of division in the early church. Slavery. Onesimus was one of these slaves. And he had run away. And in the amazing providence of God, had encountered the apostle Paul. Paul the apostle is incarcerated in jail and encounters this runaway slave. And guess what happens? Well, what does Paul do with anybody he encounters? From what we know about him in Scripture. He's going to proclaim the gospel. This is, this is his message. This is what he does. He tells people the gospel and he strengthens Christians. It's pretty simple. Well, of course, Onesimus hears the gospel from Paul and lo and behold, believes it. And of course, the gospel, when you believe in Jesus and Jesus is your Lord, it has implications in your life. And the implication for Onesimus was you need to return to Philemon, your, your master. And likely, so Paul writes, and knows this master Philemon, Paul writes the letter to Philemon, and it's probably carried to him by his runaway slave Onesimus. Now that's a meeting. By the way, under Roman law, a, Roman's, a, a runaway slave, that's a capital crime. You know, the Romans just don't mess around. They don't really care about due process of law. If you do certain things, you die. Usually a long and painful death. Runaway slave is one of those crimes... You're done for. And now Onesimus is going to take this letter from the Apostle Paul, seemingly a newly converted Christian, back to Philemon. And look at what Paul says. He uses the same word 
as we find in Romans 15:7, Philemon 1:17. So if you consider me your partner, by the way, the word partner there is koinonia. It's the word fellowship. If you consider me in fellowship, if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. That's the word welcome in Romans 15:7. Welcome the slave back. Furthermore, I mean, what's it going to be like in worship, worshiping with a slave? Under Roman law, he's your property. But under God's law, he's your brother. That changes things, doesn't it? The gospel radically changes things. The gospel creates the people of God to unify together and glorify God together. It's one of the reasons we're trying to start home fellowships here at our church. Uh, They begin this week on Wednesday. And I wanted to conclude our service by praying uh, for the families that are going to be involved in, le- in hosting this. And there's other families that are hosting as well, but I thought we would pray this morning for those that are beginning this week. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus who calls us to unity and fellowship. Thank you for the fellowship we have in Christ, in the truth, in the gospel. God, I pray that we would live in such harmony with one mind for the glory of God. And God, that we would use our voices to praise your name, for you are worthy. And Lord, I just pray that as we meet together, we would welcome one another and love each other. Thank you for Alan and Bethany and their hospitality. I pray you'd bless their efforts. Thank you, God, for Mase and Nicole and for their work here, for opening their home to people in our church and to others. And thank you for Michael and Samantha and their work and their faithfulness and for opening their home, Lord. Just pray that you'd use this, God, to build up our body, to strengthen our faith, and to help us with one voice glorify you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.